0: All right, good morning again. How's everybody doing? (laughs) All right, so I had something interesting happen um, in the last uh, two and a half songs, and um, I apologize for this ahead of time because I should be more professional, should be able to walk right out here and make this happen, but um, at some point this morning, I had a Bible in my hand, and there's a bookmark to the verse that we're going to look at, as you notice, uh, never mind, they found it, Okay. Gonna say, I don't know where I put it. <laughs> Got to singing, didn't know where the Bible went. First time I've had a print Bible in my hand at Life Point since uh, we did the study through Matthew, if anybody remembers that. Who was going here when we taught through Matthew? Oh, it's awesome. Huh? <laughs> for those of you who are not here, we stayed in Matthew for uh, seven decades. And uh, in fact, we were, we were in uh, Matthew chapter 5 for so long, and those days I used to take a sticky note, and I would write the bottom line on a sticky note instead of the TV, this was pre-technology days, and uh, I would write it on a sticky note, and there were so many sticky notes on my Bible in Matthew chapter 5 that my Matthew chapter, uh, on Matthew, uh, the Beatitudes, that uh, in that particular Bible, the Beatitudes don't exist anymore, there's a big hole where the sticky note finally just pulled a hole in my Bible at that place, so um, anyway, it's interesting. So, hey, uh, real quick before we jump into uh, my favorite Christmas time passage, uh, please don't forget that we're going to be praying as a church for 168 straight hours coming up in a couple of weeks. On your way out this morning, if you've not signed up for an hour, uh, please do that, and they'll give you one of these prayer guides uh, to go along with your hour. This is so important. We do this three times a year, and uh, we just we it, it just allows us to slow down for a week. And remember that everything we experience around here, um, and by the way, you have a front seat, front row seat to God doing some really cool stuff, uh, and, and we just, we know we do that, that it's the Lord's favor, it's not our creativity, and three times a year we just want to take some time, just pray and say, God, just please keep doing what you're doing. We have enjoyed it so much, please continue to do that. So grab that and uh, join us for it. Uh, I want to begin with prayer this morning, and um, and then we'll jump into again, my favorite passage. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for this family. Uh, thank you that uh, for whatever reason, because of your good pleasure and just because you love and you bless, that uh, you have put together this unique thing um, called LifePoint. And uh, God, we want to be good stewards of what you're doing. And so, uh, God, we pray that as you bless us, we'll be a blessing to others. And um, God, as we celebrate communion, uh, the Lord's Supper here together in a little bit, in a few minutes to remind ourselves uh, of your death, your burial, and your resurrection, and then as we witness uh, several people being baptized as a testimony to uh, their faith in you and following you, Uh, God, never let us get comfortable and complacent and satisfied uh, with remembering your death, burial, resurrection, and watching you do life change in people's lives. Keep that in front of us all the time. Uh, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray you you just bring it to life for us, and um, let us see your word new and fresh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, So I've said it before a million times around here, I love Christmas time, it's my favorite time of year. Um, I hope you enjoy Christmas, but I also know that Christmas is a unique time of year, right? Because um, for every joy to the world in someone's heart, at Christmas, there is also those who are experiencing uh, loss for the very first time at, at a holiday or the, the memory of a loss at a holiday. Uh, there are people who um, are dealing with uh, broken hearts, broken dreams. And for them, the holiday can often take on a very different dynamic. I, I know many of you know that I own a restoration company as well. And just last night, I was in a lady's home. who The, the, the pipes burst upstairs, flooded her whole house, um, it, it, and everybody's too busy to deal with it, including us, really. Um, but for whatever reason, I went to see her, and this was a story. This is her first Christmas um, since losing her husband that she was married to for 51 years. And um, I, I really don't even—I'm not even all that, honestly—not even concerned about like fixing her house. That's like secondary. I just had a chance to hang out with her family last night and and just watch them. I mean, just sit with them while they cried, just kind of remembering. Um, you know, this is, the last, this is the last remodel I did with my husband. Now it's Christmas and I come home to this. And so I have to try to remember sometimes that my joy to the world is somebody else's wrecked weekend. It's someone else's disappointment or sadness or brokenness or reminder of um, the difficulty of what's going on in their life. And I would be willing to bet that amongst all the smiles this morning, there are some of us in the room that are dealing with hurt and brokenness. And, um, and, and, and here's the cool thing for me is I think that the Christmas narrative, the, the advent of Jesus, the, the arrival of God in the flesh, I think is the penultimate narrative in Scripture for those who are either joy to the world this morning or brokenhearted this morning. I think it is, it is so interesting that the same narrative is the narrative that both of us need to hear is that, that there is this God, and, and if I had to sum up the Christmas story into a sentence or two, uh, and, and, and most of you in the room, I mean, you've grown up hearing this story of, you know, the the, the baby Jesus who's born um, and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn, and the, the shepherds who are on the hillside, and the angels appear, and uh, the heavenly host sings, and tells the shepherds to go and find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and then just sings. And most of us in the room have heard that story. But if I had to sum up this, this Christmas narrative into just a sentence or two, it would be this, that hope has come for the hopeless. And if I just had to, like, sum it up, is that, is that the whole world prior to the arrival of Jesus was a world in desperation. And now here's the interesting thing. It was the world in desperation looking for something they didn't even know they needed, trying to satisfy this desperation in every possible way that they could think of to only find that whatever satisfaction they found was just temporary and the soul constantly yearning for something that would just bring peace and joy and comfort and hope. And maybe not even realizing and knowing what it would be was just yearning for it. And then Jesus comes, and at that point, time is split in half. And from there forward, it is hope that maybe the world doesn't even know that they really need. But they have a sense of desperation. There's a brokenness. There's a void. There's something I'm yearning for. And so now the soul yearns for not what's coming, but for what has come. And those of us who have found what has come are trying to help those who didn't know it's come to find what has already come so that they can experience what we've experienced. I mean, that's the story of Christmas. And and then it gets whittled down to gifts and trees and snowmen and movies and Lifetime and all that kind of stuff. It gets whittled down, and, and, and in many ways we get this facade of what it's supposed to be. But even in the facade, there's this murmur, this feeling of... I just need to feel relief and hope for my desperation, whatever that desperation is. And and I think that's why the passage I want to show you this morning is my favorite of the Christmas kind of verses of Scripture, the ones that we think about at Christmas. I think this is why it's my favorite. I want to paint the picture for you. So Isaiah is a prophet, um, and uh, the the book of Isaiah, you can turn there if you want to, or or just get your phone out and go to it, or it'll be on the screen. But um, Isaiah the prophet He existed in Israel in a time when Uzziah was king, right? And I was just talking with Todd about this just a few minutes ago, And, and here's the thing. He was king for 52 years in Israel, and for the most part, Israel would consider him a good king. 52 years, so imagine that. That would be 13 terms of presidency. Imagine having the same president, the same leader in our country for 13 terms, for 52 years. I mean, the vast majority of Israel had no comprehension, no thought of anything other than him. And when when Isaiah begins to prophesy about this Messiah that would be coming, it was at the end of his reign, at the end of his life, when an entire country of people felt this oncoming desperation because the thought was, everything's going to change. Now, we don't know if it's going to change for the better, change for the worse, change for the good, change for the bad, stay the same, but something was going to happen. And the entire nation is likely restless, wondering, how is this going to affect our lives? And in the midst of that, God sends a message. In the midst of that desperation, God sends a thought, a verse, a, a statement through the prophet Isaiah that has lasted. The, the 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 day i mean it has lasted history it has survived time and it's become something that we see and we read and we hear this time of year all of the time and this morning I want to hope I hope that I help you see it in just a little bit of light to a desperate to a country with desperation to a country who needed to know that hope was on the horizon to a person who may be sitting here today that feels like your whole world has fallen apart or has felt like your whole life has been in shambles. To those in the room that are dealing with broken hearts and broken relationships and broken finances and whatever says, I just need something I can really cling to. I need a coping mechanism that might actually be effective. To those, I think, Isaiah says these words. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says... For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And Remember, it's a, it's a time in history for Israel where the government, the civic climate is uncertain. And, and even though that's the smallest probably of the issues in terms of eternity, God cares enough to send the message to say, Hey, even what you're worried about, I got it. The government will be up on his shoulders. And his name shall be called. And I want to stop right there for a minute, because and I want to deal with the rest of this. Um, I want to stop just briefly and talk about what we've already read. You know, it, it, here's what Isaiah doesn't mean when he when he says this. He doesn't mean that Jesus is going to have four different names, and nobody's going to know what to call him. And, you know, you're walking down the street and they're just calling out random names to him. No, the idea of his name shall be called means this is what is going to epitomize who he is. This is the description of his character. This is the description of his personality. This is the, the description of who he is at the very core. It's not just what name we're going to give him, but this is, this is who he is. This defines Who this coming king would be. And I love that as God, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking through Isaiah and Isaiah is prophesying, that he begins at the very, very very beginning of that and he says, For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And my whole life I've thought, well, it just seems redundant, right? Because a child is born, a son is given, but it's not redundant at all. What Isaiah is telling those who need to hear hope is God's about to do something so different and so permanent and so lasting, and so divine. Because when he says, for unto us a child is born, well, any of us in the room could say, well, I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, kids are born all the time. I mean, every day, it turns out. There's somebody born somewhere. And so if all that the prophet had said was, for unto us a child is born, then we might get excited about that because babies being born are kind of exciting and they bring people together and we smile for a minute and then we realize those little animals are animals. Right? It's like, oh my, what do I do with this, right? But for a minute we could smile, but here's what he says. That Isaiah wants to go, no, no, there's, this is different. This is different than just a child being born because at the same time, there's a child going to be born. Simultaneously, though, a son is given. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, the child being born talks about is, is indicative of, of Jesus's, of his humanity. That, that what God is going to do is he's not just going to send someone to rescue. He's not just going to um, designate someone or delegate someone. But he's actually going to clothe himself in flesh and become one of us. He is the Emmanuel that's going to get close and nearby. That doesn't just... Who's not just so much grander than us and so much greater than us that he kind of, sort of understands us, but becomes one of us, and as the writer of Hebrews would say, would be tested in every manner just as we have been tested, and yet would be found without sin. It was he understands your hurt. He would feel the same emotions that you feel. He would, he, he would, he would know what it. He would know what taste and smell and touch and and hearing and sight is. He would, he would understand disappointment and broken heartedness and frustration and happiness and the joy and laughter and weeping and sadness. He would get us. The idea of Emmanuel is that God gets us. And he said a child will be born. He will be human. He will be like you. He will get us. But at the same time, a son is going to be given. And then the idea, the, the implication of that is, but he is so much more than a child. He is the son of God. He is... He is he is divine. He is not just clothed like a god. He is God. He doesn't just have some of the qualities of God. He is God, and he says, and and the government will rest on his shoulders. In other words, he will bear the responsibility, and in our case, he bears the responsibility of our desperation. And he says, and his name is going to be called. He says, so now, now let me tell you what he's going to be like. He says he's going to be a wonderful counselor. Now, I love this. I love this because the idea of counselor is actually not what many of us think about today, although I think that's okay. I think if you need counsel today, the best place to find counsel is in God that loved you enough to come get close to you. And to to remember that the best way to live is to live by the principles that God outlines in his word. God wants your best. And when God has a plan for your life, you ought to do it because it's the best possible plan. But it's more than that. It's, It's the idea of, In that day and time, when they heard counselor, it would be the idea of a king who had counselors around him to help him navigate the difficulties and the challenges of a government. In other words, very specifically, to deal with the domestic issues and to deal with foreign issues of war. It would be this battle, this struggle, and the king would surround himself with people who could be a strategist. In fact, if you were to look at the Hebrew word, For this, it probably would be better accurate to say that he was the, his name will be called Master Strategist. And you say, why does that matter, man? Because if I'm gonna have to obey somebody's plan, if there's gonna be a plan and I'm gonna commit my life to it, I want that plan to be devised by the Master Strategist, the one who can see time in all directions. The one that can be aware of everything that's happening and not be overwhelmed. The one who has my best interest at heart. See, what makes him him a strategist is that he has the capability to know all things, to do all things, and to plan for all things. But what makes it great for me and you is that he's not just a strategist. He is a wonderful strategist, which means that what he desires for our life is our best. So he's the wonderful counselor. Submit to his plan. It's the best possible plan. In every seat across this room probably is somebody who can go, well, I really thought I had this great idea one time. And it went really far south. But there's nobody in the room who goes, let me tell you what, I I heard the Lord tell me one time, this is my plan for your life, and I did it, and it was horrible. Because what we ultimately find out is what God wants becomes what we want when we submit to what God wants. We find him to be the wonderful counselor. And he says, but not only that, he's also going to be called the mighty God. To a kingdom, to a citizen in Israel who was watching their king die, who had experienced 52 years of things being relatively good, you really were hoping that the next king was going to be a king that had the ability that would be powerful enough to sustain the good times in Israel. And God says to Isaiah, oh, the one I'm sending is so much better. He's not just a strategist. He is the mighty God, which, which means this. For you and me this morning, it means this. That God's plan for your life, he can execute. It's not only the best plan, but he has the capability to execute it. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Think about that. There's never been an accident. There's never been, a, there's never been an oops. There's never been a moment where God went, well, boy, I just didn't see that coming. Now, see, God, God being, being God means that nothing escapes his knowledge. Being the mighty God means nothing is outside his ability. He has an invitation to have a relationship with a God that can do what he wants. Whenever he wants. And however he wants. The only thing God can't do is anything outside his character. It's impossible for God to, be, to not be compassionate. It's impossible for God to not be loving. It's impossible for not, God not to be gracious and caring. He is the mighty God with the capability to execute his will. At will. Isaiah says, oh, his name. He's going to be called, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now, this is my favorite one, Everlasting Father. It's my favorite one, I think, of all of them. Because I think that what God's wanting to say through Isaiah is something on a deep emotional level to us. I think he chose words intentionally. Now, I didn't know this until I was reading about it, not before last, but to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel has is always referred to their kings as, as the father of Israel, which is kind of interesting to me. It's a, it's a terminology they use. So if you're, a, if you're a citizen at a time when things have been really good and now your king is died and you're worried about the direction of your country, all of a sudden you're going, boy, I wish that we had a benevolent father, a king who would never leave. And to those folks, Isaiah said, I'm going to send one that's an everlasting father. A father that never abandons you. A father that never lets you down. The father who, who, who is constantly aware of your needs and willing to meet them. It's an everlasting father. It's a one time for all time. It is is the thing that our soul most longs for, to be fully known and be fully loved, is is captivated in the idea that God is our everlasting Father. You know, I, I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your dad, and for many people across the room, and maybe listening online, it's like, I can't even comprehend a benevolent, compassionate father, and I'm sorry if that's your experience. But when God uses the word Father, let me tell you what... That evokes for God is one who cares, one who can be trusted, one who is there, one who lasts. It is it is the picture of compassion and and care. And Isaiah says, and it'll be everlasting. I love that word, everlasting. You know why I love it? Because we can't even understand it. Because nothing in our lives is everlasting. And so it's almost like God sticks that in there with that Isaiah prophecy just to say, it's so much better than you could even imagine because you've never experienced everlasting. Nothing in your life has ever lasted, but I'm going to. From beginning to end, from start to finish, on into eternity, forever and ever, we will look at our Savior and we'll know him as Father, one who cares. The one who comforts. The one who cherishes. The one that never ends. And then he ends it and says, he'll be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Now, this is what I really, I, I enjoy this and as I start to think about where Israel was and where we are and where you may be. The one thing that I think would be a commodity that is needed more than anything else in this world is peace. I mean, my goodness, I bet your home needs peace. I bet your life needs peace. I bet your work could use a little peace. I bet there's no doubt our country could use some peace. I mean, let me tell you, when I when I think of Christmas season, this is the funniest thing to me. If I'm like just an, an observer is how many times beginning, you know, it used to be the day after Thanksgiving, now like beginning in July, right after Fourth of July or Flag Day when Christmas season starts, it's like every Christmas decoration has the word peace on it or joy. That's the two, peace, joy, peace. Joy. For four months, I was always like, peace, joy, peace, joy, and then you look around and go, ain't nobody got none of that. We're, we got, we're angry, and it's chaos, Right? I mean, it is Christmas Eve. You drive through town last night, and it's what you hear. It's like, boy, we are full of joy and peace, right? Bless our hearts. You know what I mean? It's like, the crazier Christmas gets, the more we need to ride it. Like, I feel like the world right now, I feel like they're, they're taking giant sharpies, and they're like, peace, dadgummit. You know what I mean? It's like, where did the peace go? And here's what God knew. God knew that because of the fall and because of sin, your sin, my sin, Adam's sin, Eve's sin, we live in a world of sin, we sin ourselves. Here's what He knew He knew that peace would constantly be under attack. Our natural bend is to conflict and chaos. So he speaks right to the heart of our biggest problem and says, I'll also be the prince of peace. You say, what kind of peace does he bring? Well, I think he primarily brings peace between us and God because at the very core of our issue is the fact that we are separated from God and scripture says that we are enemies of his. We are his enemy. Can you imagine how foolish we must be? To willingly make ourselves an enemy of the mighty God. What a a dumb thing we do. But it's exactly what we do. We choose what we want over what he wants, we choose the flesh over faith. And right in the heart of this prophecy, he ends by going, I'm going to be the Prince of Peace. Now, here's why that's so remarkable because if you were an Israelite, it's not what you would have expected. Because in that day and time, peace within your country didn't come in the way that Jesus brings peace. It came from military advantage. It actually was peace after conflict because we settled our enemies, we conquered our enemies. But Isaiah says, God's is going to do something different. You see, he doesn't, to the bully, he doesn't become a bigger bully. To the enemy, he doesn't just fight harder. When we we sin, he doesn't just beat us into submission. He becomes the prince of peace. He brings peace. He offers forgiveness. He brings redemption. And he says, in my economy, things will be different. You want to be great? Gotta be least. You wanna be first? Be last. You wanna be the greatest of all? Watch how I wash your feet. You wanna know what it feels like to conquer? I do it with peace. I'm gonna I'm going to bring order through peace. And this morning, I think that's the best offer that he makes to you. If you're here you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you need to experience the Prince of Peace as the one who redeems you, humanity, back to God, that satisfies the enemy, the the enmity that lies between you and him. If you're here today and you're like, man, I'm a believer, but my goodness, my life is so chaotic. Here in a minute as we sing and as we take of the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to just get Alone for a few minutes with the Prince of Peace. If your life is chaotic and out of control and you can't figure out how to cope, it's because you've moved away from the Prince of Peace, not because the Prince of Peace has just decided that you need conflict in your life. Just find a way to get right back up next. Go, Lord, what I need today is I need a wonderful counselor, I need a mighty God. I need an everlasting father, and I certainly need the Prince of Peace. And here's what you'll find, is that true to the promise that Isaiah made hundreds of years before Jesus would come, is you will find him to be every one of those things. Thank you for hanging out with us for Christmas. And don't miss an opportunity to get up next to the mighty God, the everlasting father the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for being who you are and for allowing us just a few minutes on Christmas to slow down everything we're doing and just focus on who you are. Or I think it's interesting that when Isaiah was going to talk about you, he said, behold. When the angels were going to talk to the shepherds about you, they said, behold. When John saw you walking, he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let us behold you this morning. To just take a few minutes and focus intently on you. While we take the Lord's Supper, while we sing, while we respond, and while we watch baptism, just let us gaze upon you and rediscover the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. Thank you, Emmanuel, that you have come near. Be adored in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.